0: This is Taylor Henry with the 1080 Outdoors Podcast, and I'm not even going to waste your time right now. It is getting near the last week of October when the fire starts getting hot for these whitetails, man. I'm excited. but We have one of the best in the business, one of the best hunters I've ever seen, one of my favorite shows to watch, Aaron Warbritton from The Hunting Public. So I'm not wasting your time. I'm going to go check some trail cameras. I'm hitting the woods here soon enjoy aaron he is i don't have to say it just listen up man you'll like this one so i'm joined by uh the hunting publics aaron warbritton aaron thanks a ton for being on our podcast um we've been huge fans of the hunting public now since you guys started um if you want to kind of intro yourself uh where you're from how you got into the hunting industry for everyone listening
1: yeah thanks for having me i'm uh I'm from Paris, Missouri. It's a little town. with about 1,000 people in it in northeast Missouri. And I basically just grew up around hunting nonstop. I mean, my dad hunted. All of his best friends hunted. There was deer camp every year. My, uh, my close family members hunted. My uncles taught me a lot growing up about it. And my cousins... <coughs> my cousins... And one of my cousins, my best friend, Brandon, uh, we grew up hunting together. We're basically, we're close to the same age. He, he was a year older than me, but when we were very, very young, we were in the outdoors tracking deer and going, you know, with our, with, like I said, my uncles or my dad or his friends. And eventually we started watching hunting videos and decided that was going to be something that we wanted to do when we were like 10. So... It's sort of just been my my whole life, or the majority of my life, I've filmed, hunts, and yeah. been in the woods pretty much nonstop.
0: I always find that interesting too, because people always ask, like, why would you want to f- bring a camera in there and add that much stress and all that other um, stuff? And it's always kind of difficult to explain to someone. It's kind of like you just naturally like it's like you have to have it, like. I've gotten to a point yeah, too, I mean, where it's like, it's just not the same without it, I guess, where you can't watch it afterwards. I know it causes a lot of problems, but.
1: Yeah. We grew up in the country. I mean, there's, there's not a ton of stuff to do out there other than, you know, farm work and hunt. Yeah. And we would just, we would uh, on summer break from school, you know, I would sit over at my aunt and uncle's house and we would, shoot bows in the yard you know we would go out in the evenings ride our bikes down the road or, or get dropped off and we would watch deer you know we'd cruise around with my uncles and and watch deer back then it was legal to spotlight in some places and that was really fun to do when we were kids and we would just wait every summer the monster buck tape would come out yep yep and this was the first few years of monster Buck.
0: Oh, dude, like that, was, we, that was the first video too that I was just obsessed with. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was like how many, how many versions did they come out with? Man, like uh,
1: there was, I think in like season four or five they started coming out with different with two volumes. Yeah, but yeah. But we watched bow hunting October Whitetails. That was a tape that my uncle had that we watched all the time. Some of Drury's early, early stuff, Primos, you mm-hmm. know. But we were we were, we owned the very first, you know, tapes or copies of those videos that they made. And then we're just instantly big fans of it because that was kind of what we, that was all we did. I mean, that was, that was what our lifestyle was growing up. It was just hunting and fishing. So we would just, I mean, we weren't, we weren't, I mean, we played video games and, and hung out with our friends and, played sports and that sort of thing like most kids do but a lot of it was focused on hunting even at a very very young age so that's kind of how I got started
0: yeah I still remember the video I had had Dale Earnhardt Jr. shooting a big buck out of a box blind maybe it was a tree stand I still remember that hunt (laughs) I thought it was crazy Dale Earnhardt Jr. was or not even Jr. no it was Dale Earnhardt it wasn't Jr. Yeah, original. Dale senior. Yeah. Yeah, Dale senior. That's funny. So, yeah. um from there you obviously got your introduction into the into the industry. Um and I guess we could just go in like how did how did the Hunting Public start and and uh I know you guys had some other affiliations before that, but how did the Hunting Public in general start and what's your guys' goal with it?
1: Well, it's kind of a long story, so I'll give you the abbreviated version, I guess. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm sure, uh... I, Like
1: I said, I've been, I've been doing this my whole life in some capacity. That was always kind of what I wanted to make into a career. So even when I was doing other things in high school and college and whatnot, I was still dabbling in, in video production and, like, filming hunts and editing hunts and that sort of thing. So eventually, you know – we started working, well, I started working for Bill Winkie at Midwest Whitesell in 2011 as an intern, and that's also where I met Greg, and I eventually hired Zach Farinbaugh there as an intern in 2015. And we learned a great deal working there on, you know, how to produce digital media, you know, near-life content, all of that stuff. I mean, we basically just I I didn't realize at the time, but we were editing so much footage in comparison to what most people do as far as, as like editing hunts. I mean, we would be cranking out each of us two or three episodes a week at the time. And, and all that was great, valuable experience on how to learn to edit videos efficiently. Yeah. And I guess the idea from the hunting public was kind of born, out of our camaraderie that we that we grew up with we all grew up around the deer camp uh social aspect side of hunting so naturally when we started hunting together we're buddies and we're pulling for each other and working together trying to accomplish similar goals you know in hunting and we just felt like that that was getting lost in the shuffle of things is in uh in the industry like it we were creating this exclusive bow hunting culture where it's like, but you you got to be this super hardcore, ultra detailed person that has all the finest gear and all these things, and you got to you got to stride to shoot a certain size buck, and all of that is just fine. But I just felt like across the board, we were promoting that too much in the industry. We were we were turning whitetail hunting into an exclusive sport when it actually in its inception was an inclusive activity it was something that we that built up off of deer camp like if in if you go to states like wisconsin and michigan and pennsylvania deer camp tradition is still alive and well there
0: oh psycho! you know
1: but it was yeah it was shrinking to a degree at least we felt like it so we're like well i mean we're regular people we're average folks just like The majority of hunters out there so let's let's create something for them let's create something where we can show them how much fun you can have in the woods and make it sort of promote that inclusive culture that social aspect of hunting and not the other side of it and that's kind of that's why the hunting public was born and that's what the name means it's not necessarily hunting public land. It means the hunting public, like the general public. Right. Like everybody, everybody that hunts. And we don't, and we, we love them all. We don't care if you want to go out one day a year and shoot a spike on opening day. We don't care if you are super, super serious and you want to shoot a mature buck or bust. Everybody's, you know, we're all, we're all the same. We're all hunters. So that's kind of where the name came from.
0: Yeah. That's what I always say. Everyone that hunts is, that should be paying a license fee and that's helping keeping the sport alive. So
1: that's right. We're looking at it from a, from a, you know, a long term goal here as just a, sustaining hunting in society, I suppose.
0: Yeah. And I'll say, uh, from the outside, um, from someone that doesn't under like, I understand the video editing. That's what I did too to be able to get away from um, my normal job was video editing. Um, so I understand the craziest thing about me or when I watch you guys is how fast you turn around content and how much you push out. Uh, but it makes sense because, you know, what you guys did at Midwest Whitetail is very similar. I mean, the amount of content you guys push out is insane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like obviously I said, all those, years
1: there were, all those years there were just training us to do yeah. that, essentially. Right. And I learned a I learned a lot about business and stuff within the hunting industry from Bill. He's been around it for a long, long time. And I learned a, a ton from him around or definitely about the business side of the hunting industry stuff.
0: Yeah, and that's that's so important too, is to have someone middle mentor on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So uh um now we can get into the actual nuts and bolts of our conversation. So you guys hunt a ton of public land um, and I'm sure you guys work with a lot of clients as well uh, so w- when you're traveling or working with clients do you use aerial foot aerial pictures and different things um, for scouting when you're not able to actually have boots on the ground oh yeah
1: all the time like uh, we spend as much time looking at maps as we do boots on the ground stuff
0: okay so what do you so, what Yep. What are some of the key things you guys are looking for when you're, when you're first introduced to a property, um, whether it's a client or a, uh, or your public piece, what are like, if you had like three things that you're looking for right away?
1: Man, I don't know if I could keep it just to three. There's a pile (laughs) of
0: stuff
1: that we're looking at when we're, when we're taking a look at a property. I mean, it's, on the broad scale of things, we're looking at what the regulations are in the area okay. and, and you know, is there special regulations for that particular county, you know. And then from there, when we get to looking at the actual habitat and the huntability hunt, of the property, if you will, I don't even know if that's a word, but whatever,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, we're looking at how hunters access the property and how they use it. So where are their tree stands? Where do they put their cameras? How often do they check their cameras? Where are the access points? Is it, is it mostly walking foot traffic? Is it, are they driving into the property? Is it accessible from one side or three sides or four sides? Because the first thing we want to understand is the human intrusion aspect like the human pressure, where does it exist on the area? And then we can start to look at how deer react to it and how they put themselves in situations to even monitor at the time. It, it kind of depends on the, your goals as a hunter and what you're wanting to harvest. You know, whether it's a, a, a doe or a small buck and you've only got a couple of days to hunt and you're more of an opportunist type hunter or whether you're searching for a mature buck in a big buck. So that's kind of the immediate question that we're asking is, well, what are you, well, what are your goals as a hunter and how many hunters are on the property with you and what are your goals as a group?
0: Right. Yeah. So, um, I had sent Aaron over an aerial shot of one of the farms that we hunt. Um, Uh, Just to give you background on that farm, Aaron, it's southwest Wisconsin, very, very uh, hilly topography is steep, um, deep carved ditches, and we have floods like every year. (laughs) So those ditches are just rock, uh, full of rocks and not very easy to cross. Um, So there's no real special rules besides we can't have baiting or anything. Um, so if I was a client of yours looking or someone that you were trying to give some uh, consulting to, uh, you take a look at our the property I sent you? It's all farm, farmland uh, with a road running through the center of it with access always being from field into woods, which is I think the biggest struggle on that property because you're sitting like morning access is always tough because you're sitting walking through farm fields and you know, a lot of times deer are out there. So yeah um, access in uh say let's let's, let's cover access so like access in a um farm field or a farm land situation like that where you're accessing through farm fields through pastures stuff like that what is something that you found that is the easiest way to get in free and clear and then out too
1: well it all kind of depends on the situation we try to look at each of them individually if possible so it's hard for me to give general advice but I would say in in many cases, if it's private ground and you can drive vehicles on it, if you're going in in the morning, just pull in there and try to rub the deer off with the truck before you go walking in, yep. you know, because they're, they're going to react differently to that type of pressure than they will with a person walking through the field and surprise them, so to speak. You pull in, they might ease off the edge of the field and down into the cover of the timber and just stand there for a few minutes. And they may may even come back out once the danger is no longer present. But if you're walking it, you're gonna end up a lot closer to them before they detect your presence. And that can result in spooking the deer a lot harder than you would if you would just drive it. So that's an option. Another thing that we use a lot is the conditions. If it's wet and windy, for example, and it's dark outside, we've noticed that, And we, we go in with headlamps, whether it's coming out in, in the evenings or going in in the mornings early. We've noticed that you're fine walking across those fields with a headlamp on. So long as you're quiet and you're nice and slow, if, if you have those windy, wet conditions, deer really won't pay a ton of attention to you if it's in the dark.
0: Yeah, just, I, I would agree with that. That's just you know. been
1: our experience. I mean, I've, I've been close enough to deer to touch them in the dark with those headlamps on full blast. And multiple times I've been climbing out of the sand after dark and seen bucks bedded underneath the tree that came in right at last light and, and bedded down. And we got out of there with the deer bedded right underneath the tree. Using the, using the headlamps, because there would be no way to do it. Well, I shouldn't say no way. It would be extremely hard to do it at night without any light assistance whatsoever. Like yeah, it,
0: quietly, yeah.
1: The headlamp makes you much, much more quiet. And if you have a ton of confidence in it, then it doesn't end up it, – it, I, I think it's a benefit for sure, especially under those types of conditions. I'm just right. not, I, I, I believe deer can see them to a certain extent. It's how they react to them that is, that is different. I don't know that they necessarily perceive them as dangerous. And a lot of people will dispute and argue that and say, you know, I was walking through the woods with my headlamp on and I walked up and a deer was staring straight at me and took off blowing and everything else. Well, think about it without the headlamp on if you're walking through an area like that and you're making noise, the deer's going to look at, look your direction. It's going to stare at you until it figures out what that noise is. So whether you have a headlamp on or not, once you get close enough to the deer, they're going to determine that you're something that's out of place and they're going to get out of there. And that noise is what gives it away. That's why I say wet, windy conditions because the deer can't hear you. Yeah. It's, windy and it's wet so you got all this noise cover and in those types of situations we walk right past them in those big fields like that and even on public land when we've hunted ag fields or the edges of ag fields or we have to cross an ag field whatever after dark to get back to the vehicle we'll just hug one edge of it and if we see deer in the lamp in the light up ahead of us we'll cut the light off and we'll we'll maneuver around them best we can. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you booger them. But it's better than just going gomming across the center of the field loud as possible on a super crunchy still morning or still evening. You know, then you're going to blow the whole thing for sure.
0: Yeah, but, so would you, uh, yeah, would you try to um, – you you Let's go again, sorry.
1: You have to just get creative in those open scenarios like that. Yeah. with, with how, how you're accessing. You know, you can, if, you, if you have control of it on a private property, you can plant screens uh, or a, a corn buffer or something like that that you can sneak in with that can help. Or what you can do is just back off and, and set some sort of an observation stand or observation point from your access where you can wait till it gets daylight watch the field watch where deer are and then slide in and just maneuver around them to get into the point that you want to hunt
0: yeah so um aaron and i by the way aaron and i did not speak about this property or any of these tactics before getting on the phone but um from hunting this property for 10 years i'll tell you number one the main way i access is driving through the field and if there's deer out in the field i try to scare them off with the vehicle ideally i would have someone drive me out there and while the truck's running get out and get in a stand just never happens (laughs) because not many people are going to wake up at 4 30 and just be able to drive you out or come out and get you at night but and then uh and other things too like you kind of you kind of figure it out throughout the years where where deer are feeding up at at night too and you you know, over time on a property. So you try to avoid those spots. And then uh, for sure, like you said, um, I said ideally I have two stand setups, one deep and like you said, observation. So when you do walk in in the morning um, and you do get held up by a deer, you can pop in a stand and then many, I've done this a lot where you wait till daylight and kind of clears out and then you push in that extra 150 yards or whatever. Um, So just, you're right you're spot on it's exactly how me hunting this property for 10 years have learned how to the best to maneuver it um so it just shows how the much main you guys have
1: the main advantage we see on private when we go and consult on private properties for the most part it is super easy for us to find out where the mature bucks are living in just a couple of hours especially if the property's fairly small because Everything on the pro—I shouldn't say everything. Most things on the property are controlled, so you can ask the, the hunter where they're accessing from, how they're accessing, where they're hunting, all these things, and you can just cross off all those spots because most people hunt the same way. Most people go into a set tree stand, they hunt it multiple times a year, they go in the same way every time. It's they're predictable, mm-hmm. and almost every single time. That mature buck is living in an area where you are not. They're bedding and living in an area where, where the hunter is not, or they're watching that spot. And it, it becomes easier to find that because you're, it's just process of elimination, right? You're crossing off 80% of, this, of, of a property. I'm not saying in this particular case, but a lot of times you're crossing off a large percentage of the property because that's where people are. And, and we ask tons of questions like where, where, where you've seen mature bucks in the past, where you've had encounters, where you've had pictures, and what were the deer doing in the pictures. I mean, lots and lots and lots of detailed questions to come down to that, to that final answer of where we believe they're living during hunting season. But it really all, almost always, that's why I'm bringing this up, is because it's a common theme and it's more general advice that works for anybody hunting public or private. You're going to avoid people, and they're going to avoid where they are hunting and where they're leaving scents, all those things. And I cannot stress that enough for somebody hunting private land. Like, if, you're, if your goal, for example, is to shoot a mature buck and you haven't been able to fulfill that the last few years, do you have to try something way different than what it is that you're doing well i mean maybe not way different but different like for for example on a property like this where your access is extremely difficult you have all these fields that the deer come in and feed in i would spend more time observing from the road or observing from a high point where you put little to no pressure on the deer until, and I would do that in the morning first thing or in the evening, whichever, whichever time you have available, just don't put any pressure on the deer whatsoever. Don't drive out there, don't walk out there, don't do anything. Just leave give them that spot and watch it until you see a mature buck come out of a particular bedding area. And, and then it, I believe that it would be easiest to go in on that deer for an evening hunt. That way you're not bumping it off in the morning. You're sliding in there after you've already observed that movement and then you're setting up to kill them on an evening hunt. That's gonna reduce the number of hunts that you have on the property in a given year, but it's going to increase your odds that you're in the right spot. So it's gonna make your hunts way, way more efficient. Right. But at the same time, uh, it's hard for people to swallow that, you know, they have their 100-acre property or their 1-200-acre property that they hunt, and they enjoy hunting, and that's what they want to do is hunt all the time.
0: Every Saturday and Sunday.
1: (laughs) Right. It depends on what your goals are. If you you love to hunt and you love to to shoot deer and watch deer, then by all means go out there and sit and hunt. I'm not telling people not to do that. But I'm just saying, if you want to shoot – a mature buck on the property, you've gotta do things differently. You and in the absence of pressure and observing those spots helps you learn so much more without damaging it in any way. I mean we do the same thing on, on public land too. We'll we'll get up and we spend more time way more time scouting than we do hunting. And scouting consists of looking at maps that means observing long distances, it means getting out there boots on the ground and looking for signs. But our goal is to set up in a spot to kill them that day when we go in to hunt. When we go in with a with a weapon in our hands and a tag in our pocket and we're going into that area where we believe those bucks are living, we're expecting to see and get a shot at them, that, that hunt specifically. Yeah. And if we don't have that level of confidence, we're not. We're, we're still searching, we're still observing, we're still scouting.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more with you. And that, I would, and it's, it's always funny because when you're saying all this stuff is, is exactly stuff that I've learned over the years of messing up and (laughs) then, because I used to, you know, go in check trail cameras, walk in, you know, every other day or and hunt every chance you could get, and pretty soon every single mature buck on the farm that you thought you had a chance at were gone by you know, the end of October and, uh, you're sitting there and you're just like, I cannot believe, um, there's no deer here, but over the last few years, it's been a lot more observing. Unfortunately with the hill country, it's very hard to observe much, but you know, you got to figure out your spots on the farm where you can see stuff. So
1: yeah. And in the hills, bucks, will, bucks are more predictable and they're betting uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll get up in a In a thick area on one of those wooded hillsides to overlook a a field down below. And if you're coming in, in that field below them, for example, or that bottom below them, they're going to see you, you know, for an evening hunt specifically, they're going to see you well before you get in position to hunt them most of the time.
0: Yeah. They'll bet up on
1: those rims and stuff, and they'll watch down below them with the wind coming over the top.
0: Yeah. I would say for sure the most important thing around here is top access to properties. I would never, yep. feel, I would not feel comfortable entering from a bottom, especially in an afternoon hunt. Like you said, morning hunts, you know, a little different. You might, you might be an advantage, but yeah, that's right. one nice thing about this property is everything that road that you see run through the middle, that's the high point. So everything on each other road just falls off. Um, so yeah, now that we, you know you talked about you guys have hunted in, in hilly type country like this. Um, have you been deer hunting in, in Wisconsin in this area? I know you guys have turkey hunting up here. I know Zach. I talked to Zach before about it. What's that? Have
1: Five, you guys percent.
0: have you sorry have have you guys uh, hunted hill country like this um, for whitetail specifically? I don't know if you have been in Wisconsin, but I know parts of Iowa have and Minnesota have very similar type topography. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we have. We haven't deer hunted much in Wisconsin, in that area, but we turkey hunted that area quite frequently.
0: Right. So in your time, um, I don't know, like, I think last year you guys weren't far away, but you're on the Minnesota side, hunting some public. Um, with those high high hills, deep ditches, what are the biggest tactics that you guys fo- focus in on when you're hunting areas like this?
1: Uh, well, that was the, the bedding... The bedding was definitely predictable in those areas, in those public areas, because we were dealing with a lot of, I guess, wooded rims with bottoms. And those bucks would just bed on the rims. So, and especially access points. So, once we could start to predict that a little bit we, uh, we started having better luck getting on deer because we had to change up our access a little bit. You know, they, they would specifically bed right above the parking areas where there was the most human traffic
0: possible,
1: especially the big bucks. That was, that was way more predictable. Um, but then again, we see that everywhere. I'll give you an example. Uh, last night for example the boys were out and they were sitting in the parking lot on public land here in iowa and they they saw a mature buck from the parking lot stand up out of his bed in a in a little bitty tiny thicket out in the center of this marsh and it's like 300 yards from the parking lot and we're talking from this parking lot you can access 4,000 acres of public land And there's two access paths going in there. And, like, people just hammer those access paths, and they walk by where this deer is bedded. But this thing can see you every time you get out of your car from where he's at. And it's a giant buck. Like, he's a super old giant buck. And if you did not know exactly where he was bedded, you would never, ever see him. Like the only, and the only reason that we knew where he was bedded is because I observed him from a tree stand about a week ago. And the tree stand is only 200 yards from the car, like right over the access path. There'd be, you know, people walking right underneath the sand to go back and go hunt. But at last light, we saw that buck come out of that bedding area.
0: And, is, and that a, is that a, is that what you guys, did you guys have a suspicion of that being a bedding area from previous hunts there, aerials or? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you'd set up a observation specifically looking for that small area.
1: yeah We were looking over that small area and it's kind of a, you know, you either see one or, or it's a bus and you move on. Right. But that's the one consistent thing, especially with really, really old <clears throat> mature bucks that have lived on the same property for a long time is many, many, many times they end up putting themselves in those types of situations
0: yeah. where they
1: are, they're they're observing access, but at the same time, he's out in the little bitty bedding area where nobody ever, ever goes. There's, there's never anybody out in the middle of that marsh because there's no, number one, there's no trees to hang a tree stand in. Number two, it's wet and swampy out there, and there's only a few little dry ground areas. To get to, and if anybody was to walk out there without knowing where the buck was bedded, he would know 400 yards before you ever even got close enough to him to kill him in daylight, because he could see almost everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I'd the, say I'd that say for sure that. on a, on farmland area too. I found that those little fingers and little uh, island woods that are close to the farm and barn and buildings that you forget about and don't think about generally have a ton of buck sign in them. Yeah.
1: Yep. Oh yeah. Those little farm lots and stuff. You see them, you see that all the time. Like there'd just be a little bitty wood lot behind them I mean, we saw that in Michigan last week. We actually found more big buck signs in Michigan on the, in those overlooked spots, like right next to the road, than we did way back in there. And that's the thing, like the more hunting pressure that you have, the easier it is to determine where people are going because everybody hunts the same way. Um, you know, everybody is predictable. They pull into the parking lot, there's 10 trucks there, they all walk back on, back on the same path, and then they start veering off of that path from there. But nobody okay. is, is turning around and walking back down the, the road that you drove in on. And hunting forty yards off the road, you know they're going by that little three-acre woodlot that's right next to the parking lot, and they're going to the back of the public where all the food plots and stuff were at, and the and the deeper, tipper or thicker timber.
0: Yeah. So steer the thought process to someone who has control over the property they're hunting, like they own it, um, they have control over the forest management. What is something that you could tell them um, to even create? a bedding type area in their woods, uh, something that they can do to uh, have more control over where those deer are bedding, uh, if they, if it is possible at all.
1: Uh, I mean, you can create more security by, you know, planting native grasses in the back to some of those fields potentially, where you have some like ag to CRP grass type cover a Big buck love that chest high cover, whether it's in the timber or in fields, or whatever it is for bedding, especially like a, in the Midwest, a, a CRP grass field with a bunch of like little shrubs and cedars in it and stuff with some topography is, is awesome for big bucks because they can lay out there. You'll never see them while they're bedded but then they can stand up and they can survey the situation all the way around them and they feel safe enough in there because the, that cover is tall enough. And in the woods, any area where you got high stem count growth is going to be good for bedding. Sometimes that's on the end of the point. Sometimes it's not, but at the same time, all they need in Hills is a down tree to create some flat <laughs> dirt on the side of the hill. Yeah. To, to lay behind them. and then they're looking straight behind them. but i would say if you're going to create bedding native grasses is a really good uh, solution and in very strategic hinge cutting and what i see a lot of folks do is just go into their property and just tsi hinge cut the entire thing and just say well the thicker i can make this whole thing the better well not necessarily those deer's are still going to react to pressure the same way they're still going to bed in spots that favor them with wind and sight or some sort of an advantage maybe it's hearing too you know i mean it 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 only makes sense to do it in certain spots especially and, and you can make spots better where where bucks are already bedding or where bucks are already frequenting you can go in there and just improve those so to speak yeah. But the the main thing to, to do before you do any improvements on the land is to understand how the deer use it at present. Like you, you got to know how they bed and how they travel throughout the property right now in order to, especially if that's what your goal is. You know, if you, if you're my dad, for example, he likes deer, but he's, he's a land manager for all things. Like he's, he wants to create better habitat for the quail. He wants to create better water quality, Um, you know, for the songbirds, whatever it is. He's always reading up on different things that he can do as a land manager, just to improve habitat for all the wild things that live there. You know, and that's a different, that, that can be a different strategy than just simply trying to create better habitat for deer hunting.
0: Yeah. I know on uh, this property, I've taken um, uh, the border neighbor that is to the north, actually has a cabin that the I think a person lives in um, all year round. So I've taken some of those high points. And uh, if you create a little bit of uh, cover, like you said, get and I always say just hit, have the sunlight hit the ground in certain places um, where they're overlooking that person's cabin. And not a lot of people would, would oh, want to yeah. do that because it's on a fence line and you're kind of given you're saying like, Oh, they, you want them to better on the fence line. But I look at it as there's no way that that person's going to come up from that cabin and get on these, I don't know, a big buck at least um, without them seeing them. So I've used that as an advantage cause you, I mean, you have obvious pressure. If someone's living in a, va- <laughs> in a valley below you, um, So Yeah. I've, I've noticed little things like that and make it make big differences.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, I don't want to take too much of your time man. I th- I would say the final question is um when you guys are in, in this hill country and and looking at the forecast or weather, are you trying to access um where you're heading with the wind in your face? Um or are you mainly focused on where your stand location is um having the wind blow down over a big big ravine um where you know you have that that kind of thermal um, suction area about the quarter way down the hill so is it more important to you to access with the wind in your face or where you're going to set your stand and having that wind be more what you would expect to be beneficial for a big buck moving on the hillside
1: uh we focus on the leeward side regardless of, of of how the wind is blowing for our access um we just want the deer to be bedded there. And more often than not, they're going to be bedded on the leeward side of those hills as far as wind goes. They're not going to be bedded on the windward side. So we try to get in and hunt the leeward side. And that that all uh, depends on the situation as far as accessing with the wind or without it. We don't want our wind blowing into the bedding area. But if that means we have to circle around on the upwind side of the bedding area, a few hundred yards away, we still will do it. We just have to, I mean, we we do it much quicker than we otherwise would because we don't want it blowing in there for very long. We, we've noticed that they don't tend to get up if you're a few hundred yards away and you just circle around them real, real quick with your wind blowing in there. Just so long as it's fast. You know, if you if you sit there and you let your wind basically pool down in there in the bedding area, it's going to blow them out.
0: Yeah, but, picture it like a creek your, running.
1: An, yeah. Yeah, as far as answering your question, wind is is a tricky thing and it it constantly changes where we're going to set up. Like that's why that's one reason why we don't hunt a lot of permanent sand. Um it, and the only reason we would hunt one is if it if there is a good situation for it for wind. Yeah. But you'll see I mean, you'll see on those leeward slopes where if you hunt' them on a on a windy, windy day, a twenty mile an hour wind in in one tree, you may get in, inconsistent swirling out of that tree, even if it's the correct wind for the buck to be there, if it's swirling like crazy and he's gonna smell you before he gets there, then there ain't no point in you hunting because he's gonna detect that you're there before you get a shot. You hunt that same tree on a wind that's five miles an hour versus twenty and you may get different behavior out of the wind. You hunt it when the leaves are off, you may get different behavior than when the leaves are on.
0: Such a pain in the ass.
1: It's, oh, yeah. oh oh, Without a doubt. But that's why whenever we go into these areas, we're dropping milkweed like crazy, and we're trying to understand how it moves. I mean, I don't right. care if the weather channel says north, and you walk in there, and you're like, well, it's coming out of the west, and now it's hitting me in the back of the head, and it's coming out of the south. That's because the wind is swirling somehow in that environment. It's either coming over a pocket of trees and pooling in an opening and then kicking back around something. We, we get more consistent wind flow um, the higher we get on the ridge typically, the higher we get in a tree potentially, or if we're along the edge of a big opening. You get dicey wind flow when you're down in those, in those bottoms or when the wind is encountering a tree line, even a single tree right out in the field next to you because like you said it's going to flow like water through there and Yeah. yeah watch water flow through a creek and watch what watch what happens when that water hits a big rock in the middle of the river it pools behind that rock and it circles around and it it does all kinds of funny stuff like the the current is not running straight anymore it's dipping and swirling back behind that rock, and and that's exactly what wind's going to do when it encounters an obstacle like that. Yeah,
0: oh, that's for sure. I've so, I've seen that. And a quick follow up on that is: um, have you know have you guys noticed at all specifically like the size of the ditch on the leeward side, um, the tighter that hillside on the opposite is to you do you try to avoid that kind of situation or are you trying to hunt those leeward hills that have those bigger gaps between you and that next hillside
1: uh it just depends on the visibility from the deer standpoint really it will hunt to either or of those scenarios it depends on what the deer can see what they can smell out of their bed and what you can get away with yeah i wouldn't say that one is one is necessarily better than than the other. There's just so many factors there that change like how thick is the undergrowth? You know, how open is the timber? And how deep is the ditch? Can you get in the ditch to access it? Or can they see you from above if it's a really steep incline? Can they still see you at the bottom of that ditch from where they're bedded? There's just too many factors there that are unknown to make an, an accurate assumption. You just, that's That's what it always comes down to with us is wherever he's at, we got to find a way to hunt it. And that's that's the issue that most folks have. It's like they have a spot that they want to hunt, that they got it prepped, they have their food plot, they have their stand, and they want deer to be there. When nine times out of ten, you can't make them be there. They're going (laughs) to exist in that environment wherever they want because it's theirs. You know, it's foreign to us and you have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. I know that sounds very cliché because that's what everybody says, but it's true. If if the big buck is bedding and living 200 yards from your tree stand and you're bow hunting, you're you're not going to have high odds of killing him out of that spot. And if there's no trees over there available, then you have to make something else work. If the wind does not like to behave well in that spot, you can't just say, "Well, you can't hunt it. He's he's invincible in there." There's a way you can get in there. I mean, maybe you have to wait for certain type of conditions where it's low wind, like five miles an hour or less, and wet, where you can get in there quiet with a more predictable wind flow. And the only way to figure all that stuff out is to start trying it. Don't be afraid of spooking bucks because they, they've they already been spooked, trust me. They, they're in that spot because they've already been able to get away from danger there multiple times and that's why they chose it
0: yeah i mean you got to draw from your previous experiences so you have to you have to have experiences to draw from Yeah. so yeah man well we really appreciate you jumping on the call and i know you guys are super busy so i don't want to keep you too long um what is the yeah, no problem at all. best place for people um either contact you find you what do you guys if you guys have uh you guys have apparel that's going right now uh where do you want people to head to
1: uh, just go to the huntingpublic.com and you can find us on youtube twitter instagram and facebook as well at the hunting public
0: awesome all right man well we really appreciate it and uh good luck the rest of the season
1: thanks man you too